Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. I hope your day is going well. It is getting cool here. It's about late afternoon and eh, mid-afternoon in uh, Mammoth. I'm down here visiting my aunt and uncle. Always beautiful to be here. Got a good ski in today. Can't really, can't really complain all that much on that, but quite a beautiful night coming ahead. I think it'll be brutally cold, but anyways, you know, we're about halfway through the week, hump day. Holidays are coming up. Um, yeah, should be good. Starting on, a, I guess, a lighter note, but it's kind of interesting. While humans, you know, I've been talking about the kind of trifecta right now of RSV, the flu, COVID, there's also been a rise in dog flu. I don't know why I'm talking about this, but I saw it on the New York Times, like, daily, you know, relevant news stories, I guess, and I was just like, eh, I'll start with this, why not? So here we are. Maybe I'm losing it again, but we had an article on Yahoo from the publication Dog Time, which I've never heard of, do not know what it is, but apparently they work with Yahoo or something, I don't know. But anyways, the author writes, This winter, dogs and their parents are both dealing with influenza outbreaks. <laughs> On top of a new COVID resurgence, influenza has already been stressing hospital systems nationwide. And now, our four-legged friends are having an outbreak of their own. And the article just continues and notes that this flu is highly contagious, and it's called H3N2 strain of the canine flu and it's been spreading in different areas throughout the country so places like texas california i guess on a light note it's mild from everything i've read so that's always good to see i guess and uh, yeah so i mean if you're a dog owner maybe don't send your dog to the kennel over the holidays or to a big doggy park or some one of those doggy hotels when you're on your cruise or whatever you're doing because apparently it spreads more in those type of areas but all of this is fitting. We have lots of flus and viruses going around. The dogs are getting them too. Nothing surprises me anymore. I was telling my dad earlier, I think that's my my new slogan for the last two years, or I guess just my constant slogan for the last couple of years, just nothing surprises me anymore. So here we are again. Also, I wanted to talk briefly about two of our favorites, and by favorites, I mean least favorite people in the entire world, and that's Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. We will, I guess we'll start with uh, Lauren Boebert. She's always a fun one. I just wanted to mention that she did end up winning her re-election by only about 500 votes because they had to do one of those automatic recounts. And, I mean, I guess part of me was just holding out hope that maybe the recount would not go in her favor. And do you guys remember after the midterms when I got all excited, right? I was like, oh my God, really red district. Lauren Boebert's not going to make it. Well, my hopes were dashed, and she is back, and I guess it is shocking that, you know, she almost lost to Adam Frisch, the Democrat, in a district that, from my understanding, is quite red. It would be like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, also losing in that same type of scenario, or almost losing, but, God, Sarah Palin 2.0 is back, and I'm not thrilled about it. She just annoys me, but there's just something very unique about her. And I guess it's also funny because, you know, there's all these election lies and fraud claims that like people like Carrie Lake and Trump and Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and about three quarters of the party have all talked about. And I guess it's kind of interesting that when the recount goes in her favor, all of a sudden elections work, right? Like it's kind of funny to see that there's been no conversation about this whatsoever. But of course, that's what these nut jobs are like, is that as long as it goes in their favor, the system's working fine. Now, just imagine if Adam Frisch actually 
somehow came out on top after this recount, I can only imagine the conspiracies that would be going on. So Madison Cawthorn's gone. That's good. And Lauren Boebert is still there. We almost got rid of her. Maybe next time around. And Marjorie Strong. And when I mean when I mean Marjorie Strong, I mean she's really strong. I mean, other than Trump in the GOP, I think she might be like the second biggest name right now. Obviously, there's others like Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell that are talked about a lot, but I honestly think right now Marjorie Taylor Greene is <laughs> is the probably biggest name in Republican politics right now. And she went from the fringe to the exact opposite. She is now kind of controlling the mainstream. And I wanted to briefly talk about her because yesterday I listened to a great podcast on the bulwark with Elena Plot Calabro. And she's a very young journalist who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and she's great. And I, a few weeks ago, had read her piece in The Atlantic, or maybe a week ago, had read her piece in The Atlantic called Why is Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Green Like This? On the Ground in the Georgia Congresswoman's Alternate Universe. And I think the thing to really know about her, because after reading this article and then listening to the podcast and then kind of digging deep and really looking at Marjorie Taylor Green, she's a fascinating person, and I've completely changed how I look at her. I used to think that she was like the Lauren Boebert type who's just kind of dumb, yells a lot, and likes to just be a wrecking ball. Or that maybe she's like Trump and disingenuous and just putting on an act. And this article kind of (laughs) just rips the mask off with all of that. And the article really paints her as someone who used to be normal and kind of has always been seeking something and looking for something. And it put her down a path into basically delusion And I encourage people to really give the article or the podcast to listen to. But what I learned is that, you know, she grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta to an upper middle class family. Her dad owned a construction company. She was always taken care of. She never knew what it was like to struggle. And she, you know, went to Georgia or the University of Georgia, did very well with herself there, met a guy, got married, you know, played soccer in high school kind of lived like that kind of standard like southern white girl of of somewhat privileged life. Interestingly, she grew up Catholic too, which is something that I don't think a lot of people talk about when they talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene because at least the rhetoric she uses now and the kind of QAnon conspiratorial thinking that she uses seem to be more aligned with that Protestant national like Christian nationalism that Lauren Boebert's part of too. So, it's interesting when you really find out that she's a Catholic-raised girl who went to college, grew up in a well-to-do family in the suburbs of Atlanta. Because sometimes when you see her on TV, that is not what you exp- what you think about, right? And so, anyways, <clears throat> after college, she apparently is kind of the next in line to take over her dad's construction business, but it clearly wasn't for her. And I think what this article notes a lot about is that there's a lot of things that were not for her. Basically, like, she gets into something, does it for a while, and realizes it's not for her. And... What what Elena Plot Calabro talks about a lot is that she's kind of one of these people who's always seeking more and it's not enough what she's getting. And so she leaves the construction firm and first off goes to a non-denominational Protestant church. So she does get really into her church. Again, that's not enough. <laughs> and it seems like the identity of the church and everything just isn't enough for her. She still feels this emptiness and needs to seek. And that's where she gets into CrossFit. And it's not like CrossFit is just a part of her life. Like, you know, she works and then does it maybe three times a week afterwards or before work. For her, it becomes like everything. Like, she's competing in cross uh, CrossFit tournaments. She's 
talking about buying her own CrossFit gym. Apparently her relationship with her soon-to-be ex-husband was getting worse at the time, and it sounds like she just got obsessed with CrossFit, like she got obsessed with religion, like she for a while was obsessed with working in the family business, and again, she started, I guess, writing these blog posts during it that her trainer wanted her to see why she wasn't meeting her potential, basically. So she he wanted her to write down her thoughts, and then they could go over them later, kind of like a training log or a training journal. And she starts kind of asking, like, why not me? Because I guess she was never qualifying for the tournaments she wanted to, and she's like, why not me? And I think the point of this article when they mention this is that this is when you start to see this gal who has this kind of thought of, like, why am I left out of this? Like, why am I always looking for something more? Like, why am I struggling here? And then you sort of see at this same time, Trump, you know, gets big in 2016, becomes president, and she kind of starts to spiral into this QAnon rabbit hole. And all the specifics of how that happened are not easy to know. But it seems like all of a sudden she went from then CrossFit into kind of Save the Children stuff. Like she started talking about Save the Children a lot and then getting into the QAnon stuff. And then next thing you know, the guy that's our president shares views with her. And I think she feels like it's her turn to really get into that. And so I guess she wanted to run in the Atlanta suburbs as a congresswoman. But they're all like, some of your views are too kooky here. So instead, we really need you to run in one of these rural counties that the voters actually could be appealed to with this rhetoric. And again, I'm giving a spark note to this because I really do think people should read this. But it's just a very interesting take on how Marjorie Taylor Greene is not an idiot, but she's more of someone who gets really obsessed and into things. And it seems like her new obsession is kind of being this like countercultural reactionary troll and... I think she's atrocious still, but this just changes my mind about her being an idiot, I guess. I don't know if she's an idiot as much as she's just a genuine obsessive person. And you see that when she's in interviews. Like, she always gets combative. You see her in Congress, she's always screaming. And obviously there's some mental health issues there. I, I really do think there's some mental health there issues there. But I just think that the main takeaway I got from this article was was that the author doesn't really make the point that she's fake. Like... Calabro says, like, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and, to an extent, Trump, they're all kind of fake. But she's like, Marjorie Taylor Greene might be the real deal. Like, she might truly just be this kind of obsessive nut who's kind of moved along the way to get to where she's at. So I, I just wanted to share those thoughts because I really, I really do think she's one of the most fascinating people in politics right now. Not because I'm a fan of her. I am the opposite of a fan. I am, I don't even know, what is the opposite of a fan? It's not an enemy. Um, um, a hater, I guess. But anyways, she's going to be around for a while. I think the one positive from this article, though, is that it sounds like it's very unlikely someone like her would actually be able to run for the Senate or a higher office than that. Just because Herschel Walker, for example, didn't even want her showing up at his rallies. Brian Kemp didn't. Like, it's clear that her brand is good in a small level. But is it really good at a state level, like as a senator? or at the national level. And I think it's something to be seen. And if our politics get crazier, maybe she runs with Trump or something. But right now, I think she's very happy in her district being crazy there because it's made her a regional rock star. And she doesn't really need to be speaker because she kind of has Kevin McCarthy by the balls. And Mitch McConnell knows that he's becoming the minority in his own party now. So she's a fascinating character. And I don't think she's as stupid as people think. Anyways, moving on. The last little... Small little segment I'll just give before we get into the two main topics I want to do, which are Putin and his 
and other leaders in Russia are talking about nukes again, and Xi Jinping in China seems to be having a quiet, growing relationship with Russia, even though he tries to distance himself diplomatically. Then I also want to talk about Trump who? Is he still running? Like, what's he doing? But first, it's probably not a secret by now that Sam Bakeman freed the founder of the scam, the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, was arrested. I believe it was on Monday in the Bahamas after U.S. prosecutors filed criminal charges. And I think everything that I want to say has been said on other podcasts and the news. That's why I'm really not going to say much. But all I'll say is that this seemed to be a very elaborate scheme. And what the more we find out is that if the crypto market hadn't have crashed and if crypto hadn't been struggling, I don't know if we ever would have realized what this guy was doing. So one positive of, I think, crypto losing a lot of value over the last year is that this guy was caught in the crossfire. Because from my understanding, he was like taking money from investors out of FTX, putting it into Alameda Holdings, which was his other one, playing with that in the market, and then it all kind of backfired, and it was a total scam. And he probably would have got away with it if the crypto market wasn't struggling. So I guess that's one positive. But this guy's a crook. I mean, the more you <laughs> the more you read about him and hear about what he's done, it just sounds more and more like Bernie Madoff. And I think I, I wonder if this is the tip of the iceberg is basically what I'll end with here is obviously this guy gets busted. He's really bad at hiding it. I mean, he was doing a press tour when he probably should have been shutting up. But I wonder if this is the tip of the iceberg. Like, are there other crypto firms that are doing the same thing? We will see. Um, but I think now people are really looking out for it. So that's a positive. Moving on again, I wanted to get into another kind of troubling report that I read about yesterday out of Russia. And it again involves the N-word nuclear bombs, as Trump says, which is always baffles me. But anyways, it's not a great thing when you hear Russia talking about nukes, typically. But lately, it seems like now not just Putin, but other leaders in the Russian military and other diplomats are talking about it. And in this case, there is a Newsweek article that notes in quotes here that a Russian commander suggested that using nuclear weapons may be the only way Russia can be victorious in its war against Ukraine. And the article also notes here in quotes, throughout the tense conflict, concerns have emerged about whether Putin would order the use of nuclear weapons if he feels he has no other way to win the war or if the war grows into a greater conflict with the North American Treaty Organization, or NATO. And I think for a while, <clears throat> excuse me, I think for a while we've all talked about this, that the more cornered Putin is, the more likely he's to act like a complete idiot. So, I mean, I don't think on the surface that's really surprising. But I think it's, I think this report is interesting because it's not Putin himself now talking about this. It's others in the Russian military. And we have to remember that there are other forces in Russia other than Putin that have more extreme views. And maybe that's why this worries me a little bit. So, <clears throat> sorry, I'm phlegmy today. I went on the ski earlier and I think the cold air got me. But anyways, the background on this report, though, is that there's a guy named Alexander Khodorovsky. And he's the commander of Russia's Donetsk military, right? So in <laughs> Donetsk, I mean, you know. The Russians are saying they control it, but it's in Ukraine. But anyways, he was in an interview on state TV, and he basically pointed to nuclear weapons as the one way that he sees Russia being victorious. And I hate to say it, but he's probably right. But anyways, in the interview, he basically talks about how Russian forces must realize their limits basically on the ground. Like, basically, that's a nice way of saying they're getting their asses kicked. And right now, the only way to overcome those limits could be nuclear weapons, right? I mean, when you're losing, losing badly getting humiliated, 
even have Russians fighting your own troops. It's not a great look. So you obviously need to change something. And I think that's where he's coming from here. And in a part of the interview, he said, and obviously this is not what he directly said because it's been translated into English, but he said here in quotes, we don't have the ability. We're a country which is now fighting the entire Western world. And we don't have the resources to defeat the NATO bloc with conventional means. But we do have nuclear weapons for that. We built them specially for such situations. That is why there is only one option. (laughs) Very chilling words. Very chilling words, in my opinion. And it, it worries me that this is the line they're going down. Instead of like, maybe we shouldn't have done this and we should pull back, they're saying, now the world's against our holy mission or whatever we're fucking trying to do here. And instead of maybe like saying, maybe we should re, re-examine our motives here, they're actually saying, no, people are in our way, so there's a reason why we have nukes, which is somewhat troubling. Now, I should also add that Putin has downplayed the use of nukes in October and into November. He said something to the effect of them being pointless and useless for political means. And I guess it's good he's saying that. But again, like I alluded to a few minutes ago, we do have to remember that Putin is not the far right in Russia. There's a lot of oligarchs and shadowy figures behind the scenes that would probably like Putin gone and would like to be more militaristic and more violent towards Ukraine. Putin somewhat surprisingly is not the true fascist in Russia. There are other very dark forces and other Wagner group influence forces in there. So I wonder if there's powerful Russians on the far right that hear these comments and go, hmm, that could work. And as the Russian forces of, you know, continue to get a, get humiliated, it, it, it does trouble me for sure. And I've been worried that nukes, I've, I've been worried about this for a while, that nukes really could be the only option that Russia has to win the war. And I am still not saying that is what they're going to do. The winter's going to be long and a lot of things could change by then. But the reason I say this is because Putin has constantly had regime change at the front of his whole Ukraine invasion. He wants the end goal to be getting rid of Zelensky and placing a puppet government in Kiev. And at this point, it seems like the Ukrainian government is pretty entrenched and is doing much better than people thought. So then the question is, how do you do that? And I hate to think that the only way this would happen is if the Russians were to drop some sort of large bomb, a dirty bomb, a nuke, tactical nuke, whatever, on Kiev and just wipe out the Zelensky government. And I know that sounds quite dark, but if Putin wanted to claim either a rhetorical victory or an actual victory against his changing goals of this war, this would probably be the only way to do it. And now you hear the leader of the forces in Donetsk saying the same thing. And again, I, I just think Putin needs some sort of victory here. And obviously we know he doesn't care about lives. We know no one. I mean, the more we uncover these liberated cities, the more we see the atrocities. And so, of course, the ramifications of doing this would be catastrophic for everyone. But I guess the question just comes down to whether Putin is really going to be in control for much longer, if there's other people that want him out, whether he can maintain stability there, and also if he cares about his legacy. And those are all questions that I do not have answers to. And we probably won't know for a while. I I again think the next couple months are going to be interesting to kind of see what occurs. But staying on the topic of Russia, moving away from the lovely talks of the nukes, it seems like the Chinese government has been somewhat lying to the world in how they've been trying to basically step back their relationships with Russia. And what I mean here is that we have to remember that as of late, 
when Chi has been in kind of diplomatic settings, he said that they really don't support completely what's happening in Ukraine and they want to distance themselves from Putin and all the chaos. But it's looking like that might not be true behind the scenes in what's actually happening in China because the, the Wall Street Journal has a really good piece that I think disproves all of that. And the article writes here in quotes, and bear with me, it's kind of long. It writes, behind the diplomatic appearances, Mr. Chi is deepening his long-term bet on Russia. In recent weeks, he has instructed his government to forge economic ties with Russia that are stronger. This is according to policy advisors to Beijing, building on a trade relationship that has strengthened this year and has become a lifeline to Moscow in the fate of Western pressure. The plan includes increasing Chinese imports of Russian oil, gas, and farm goods, more joint energy partnerships in the Arctic, and increased Chinese investment in Russian infrastructure such as railways and ports. I should also note that further down in the article, and this is also something I was seeing in The Economist, is that both sides are making the majority of their transactions in the in either the ruble or the uh, or the yuan and yuan, sorry, and they are doing these instead of using the euro or the dollar, which are usually kind of the main transactional currency in the world. And this is kind of a big deal because it's allowing them to create the infrastructure so that down the road, if there is, I don't know, let's say an invasion of Taiwan or more sanctions put on either one, they've kind of insulated themselves against future sanctions and they can still stay afloat. And I know a lot of people wonder why Russia has been able to survive the sanctions. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but we have to just make it clear that China has been a key factor in allowing Russia to stay somewhat afloat here. And I, I really hope that China understands the ramifications down the road of what they're doing, because this does seem like somewhat of a decoupling event here or some sort of schism event, because right now the United States and China have a very flawed but necessary relationship. And I think as more revelations come out here, it's going to be more difficult for that relationship to stay. Now, I think China might be able to create a divide in its own region so that some of these countries that rely on China can maybe break from us. But this does seem like somewhat of a schism type of moment. And this is a big deal to me because we have to remember that without China, Russia would not be sheltered from all these sanctions and all the fallout that's occurred inside of Russia. And I also think this could be interesting because, like I kind of mentioned already, there are a lot of countries that do business with both the West and China, right? Like the world is not black and white. But since the invasion... I really do see this intensifying kind of a global divide that could discourage countries that do rely on China, makes them not want to take sides. I think to an extent, we've already seen this in Africa, where places like, I don't know, the Congo, for example, or even just a lot of Africa are not really willing to stand up against what's happening in Ukraine because they rely on Chinese and Russian aid. And also probably some of the more developing countries in Central Asia specifically. And I think this also tells me that China is basically bullshitting the West. You know, when Biden met with Xi and when Xi talks in front of like large international organizations, he's always walked back involvement in Russia and seems to show a he he seems to show some sort of distaste or uncomfortability, it's not a word, some uncomfortable nature about what's happening in Russia, but that is not really seemingly true. And I think that's kind of a bold move for a country that does rely on trade with the West. But I think we have to remember that China has never really seemed to care about like internal dynamics in a country. They care about the transaction. So 
if they're willing to make deals with Russia and have some sort of cooperation with each other, I don't think they really care about what's happening inside of Russia or what's happening inside of Ukraine. I think that's a huge difference between the West and places like China, is that the West does seem now... There's criticisms there as well, but the cre- the West does seem to have more of a look at the internal dynamics of a country that we're doing business with. China doesn't seem to care, and I think that's coming to the forefront of everything right now. And I just wonder how the U.S.-Chinese relationship goes forward or what happens in the coming decades if it's clear that China is willing to work with actors that we don't like. And also, does this divide make China feel more comfortable comfortable about doing something in Taiwan? And that's something that definitely troubles me as well. Finally, I want to talk about Trump. So let's move back to the United States for a moment. I'm not going to talk about the martial law spelled like Marshall Mathers thing, because <clears throat> I'm not going to not going to lie. We all know it was a goddamn coup attempt. We all know that these people like Northam and whatever are all involved in this stuff. So I'm not going to stay on that. But I wanted to talk about the side of Trump that is kind of currently on the minds of many and definitely myself included. And it's the question about what are you up to, Donald? Because since he made his truly boring announcement back in mid-November, all he's really done is sit at Mar-a-Lago, put out some strange truth social posts, meet with Holocaust deniers, and greet, basically greet people at weddings and special events that happen at his property. He kind of seems like this late-stage enigma of sadness that kind of lurks around Mar-a-Lago, reliving his glory days and trying to get attention from guests. Because, from my understanding, he has like a table just right out in the main area in Mar- excuse me, in Mar-a-Lago, and, you know, other people that are dining there or whatever can just see him there and I think he likes to kind of make his rounds with the guests and talk about the stolen election and how he was the best president ever and how the media is so savage he's kind of become a disc jockey of sadness as well because he also has like done some DJing at weddings there like it's all just kind of sad to be honest but also I'm kind of digging it like it's kind of funny too but I can't help but wonder if he just said he was going to run for president and in reality he's not going to because Momentum is definitely not on his side because the midterms were atrocious. No one's giving him attention. Well, except for like Nick Fuentes and Kanye West. And people seem fixated on Ron DeSantis. And Trump is also up there in age. So one has to wonder if he's really slowing down and really able to do much more of this. But then again, the base loves him. And I don't really think there's any other standard bearer right now other than Trump. But... There's been some other conversations that I do want to mention as well, because as we ask Trump, who, what's he doing? Politico actually put out an interesting article, I think it was on Tuesday, and it was called Trump Who, GOP Senators Rave Over a Potential Tim Scott Presidential Run. And in the article, Marianne Levine basically begins by writing in quotes here, Joni Ernst is very excited about a potential Jim Scott or Tim Scott presidential run. John Cornyn would advise him to go for it. And John Barrasso said it doesn't get any better than Tim Scott. Even Senator Lindsey Graham, who spent much of Donald Trump's presidency sticking to his side, said he's intrigued by the possibility of a, Don- of a Scott presidential bid and wants to see what Tim does before he makes any endorsements. I mean, I think that's interesting. Again, I don't know if the, 
<laughs> I don't know if the base that's a lot of like Marjorie Taylor Greene types is going to love Tim Scott, but I do think it's interesting. I've always found Scott to be at least fairly palatable and a smart guy. I don't like some of his, I, I didn't like his rebuttal to Biden's State of the Union, but like there's bigger fish to fry. He also did a good job of, you know, staying close to the mainstream Republicans like Mitch McConnell. And he also was kind of quiet about Trump, didn't openly criticize him. That's good if you're running. It's not good for me. I think that was always my issue with Tim Scott is my instinct would tell me that deep down this guy does not like Trump at all, but he can never criticize the guy. And I understand why, but I also don't know if I want someone in office, especially at the highest office in the country who can't criticize poor character and cruelty when they see it. But also the elephant in the room too with Tim Scott is that he is the only black Republican senator and maybe this could help Republicans try to appeal to that broader group of people they were supposed to do after that GOP, sorry, GOP autopsy they did in 2012 that was completely ignored after Trump won. Maybe, I mean, like, honestly, he should have been there a long time ago, but then you have to wonder, like, if <laughs> if there's a lot of people like the Bannons and the Nick Fuentes meeting with Trump, would Tim Scott really fit into this whole MAGA movement? I don't really know. I mean, you had some people like Herman Cain who did pretty well, but I... I just don't know if Tim Scott is really the guy who can take the torch from a movement that is clearly like kind of on the, they're walking a tightrope between like conventional Republicanism and kind of a white Christian nationalism. So, but the article also discusses how Trump's awful month could be good for other candidates other than Tim Scott. Levine writes, Senate Minority Whip Tom John Thune from South Dakota said he thinks Trump's latest bout of scandals may encourage more members of the GOP conference to take another look at a presidential run, even those who previously said they wouldn't challenge Trump. Now, I think it's true, is like as Trump gets diminished, it's likely more people are going to run, but I don't know if that is as good as people think. Like John Thune makes it sound like that's a good thing. I actually think that's probably good for Trump, let's be honest. I mean, the reason I'm fairly pessimistic is because if Trump does actually run, which I mean, I'm sure he's going to, but does he make, does he win a primary is the question. But anyways, if Trump does continue to run and you have a crowded field, it's good for him. Now, I know it's early and many of these people may not run, but if you have, for example, like Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, Ted Cruz, Tim Scott, Mike Pompeo, and whoever else wants to do it, some of those never Trumpers, it's just going to help Trump in the primaries because all he has to do is be able to get a small enough plurality to move on. And the more people you have, the more you're going to split the never Trumpers and you're probably going to get the Trumpers voting for Trump again. So I don't know if this is really good news. Like, I think they need to rally behind one person. I hope it wouldn't be Ron DeSantis because I do not like Ron DeSantis, but I don't know. And Mark Leibovich also with The Atlantic, had a recent article about DeSantis as well. And, you know, he brings up some good points that I think a lot of the people who are on the DeSantis train don't want to talk about. He he just basically writes about what happens when the country gets to know DeSantis. He's He talks about, for example, how DeSantis is currently pulling ahead and polls show he could beat Biden while Biden would beat Trump. 
But he also discusses how polls in 2016 showed that Scott Walker would easily win. And he's like, it's too early out to really say that polls alone would do it. He also discusses how DeSantis is kind of a prickly dude who doesn't really respond well to criticism and also has kind of a, I don't know, like a, like a thick conscience to an extent where if you have Trump attacking you on the stage during a debate, I don't know if he could respond. He also just seems like kind of a quiet guy who has flourished in Florida because it's kind of his type of ecosystem that works, but does it work on a national stage? And I think a lot of people that like DeSantis like DeSantis because of the coverage of DeSantis on the news. Like, if you're watching Fox News, for example, you hear about what he's done in Florida, so you think he would do good on a national scale. I don't know if that's particularly the case or would really happen. I also think that the other elephant in the room here is that basically most Republicans have not condemned Trump's actions or moral flaws or the reason that he should never run again. And because they are not talking about that, I think they can easily come back to him if he's the front runner. Obviously, we have time, but I'm just hesitant that the party can move on until Trump moves on. And as long as he's ranting at Mar-a-Lago or sucking oxygen out of the room at a wedding, the party can't move on because the base is still not moving on. And we know that they turn out when he's on the ticket. So I don't know. I hope someone like Tim Scott runs. I really do, but... I'm just not going to get excited because I think we're all hoping Trump goes away, but no one's announced yet, and this is all speculation. And then again, the one guy that has announced can't leave his room without meeting with white supremacists or talking about overturning the Constitution or giving awful interviews on OANN. So I don't know, but I would just not get too excited yet because it looks like both parties do not have really good options right now is what I would say. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz. Have a great rest of your evening. I'll be back.